Hello and welcome to Bitches, Witches, and Queers. I'm your host, Christina Carlson, self-relationship coach and speaker. Here, I facilitate conversations to support seeing ourselves through a more compassionate lens. Welcome. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Bitches, Witches, and Queers. I am excited to introduce Nikki LaCroce to you today. Nikki and I connected a while back, I think at the beginning of this year and um, 2023, and we've had such a beautiful connection. I, I love her extraordinary way of seeing things, and she has such a positive view of life and um, is so curious. She asks the best questions. I was interviewed on her podcast earlier this year, and we were just like, oh my God, we could talk forever. In this episode specifically, I interview Nikki on her experience, uh, what she calls a situation, a relationship that she was in for a long amount of time that was really unhealthy and toxic and abusive. And it's really beautiful to watch Nikki process this in new ways and also just the wisdom that she offers and insight from this experience. Her podcast is a beautiful place where she uses her brilliant curiosity and way of seeing people to bring out insight and wisdom on living life and figuring out who you are. Um, I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. There's a lot of uh, gold in here. Hello and welcome back to Bitches, Witches, and Queers. Today I'm here with Nikki LaCroce, host of Who the Fuck. This podcast is phenomenal and also just like, what a great name. Um, So I... I have so many questions for Nikki. I've been on her show before. And also every time we talk, we just have like a bajillion things to talk about. It never ends. So what I specifically want to hear about today from you is your journey out of what you call a situation, which is um, a relationship you were in that turned toxic and was not supportive for you. So hi, welcome. Yes. Thank you, Christina. Oh my gosh. Happy to be here. It is long overdue. We have, as you said, just the type of relationship where conversations flow so effortlessly. And I'm very grateful to be sharing the mic with you again, especially on this topic. I struggled a lot in my life um, to get to a place where I could actually speak about this relationship. Excuse me. And feel confident that I was not saying something sort of that I shouldn't say. And I don't really know what that means, but Mm -hmm. I think that it's indicative of the fear of retribution if my ex were to hear something. And the reason that is, is because the relationship or as you referred to it, because what I've learned to or decided to call it is more of a situation was with somebody who was a covert narcissist. And I was with them for over a decade. And we met when I was pretty young. I was 23. She was 31. And I, from the very beginning, it was obvious that there weren't, um, there were red flags all over the place. I always joke around with people that it's like, you know, when you watch um, like dog agility courses and they've got all those flags lined up and the dogs are just starting back and forth between them. <laughs> That's like what I was like when I was dating. I was like, it's fine. We're going to get through it. You know, <laughs> um, not a good philosophy when you're dating, honestly, um, highly, highly do not recommend. But I do think that it's 
it's perfect timing to have this conversation because in therapy yesterday, I was talking about what would have led me to a place where I accepted the type of relationship that I was in. And for me, a big part of that was the fact that I was closeted for so long. I grew up in what I would consider like a very healthy home. I mean, my parents were very affectionate, loving, present. They coached things, they volunteered for things. Um, I did have I don't even want to call it a religious upbringing because I wasn't brought up like in the church. I went to church and I had to go to like CCD, which was like Sunday school to like do all the sacraments for the Catholic church. But I never connected with it. I just sort of was like, okay, this is what I have to do on Monday nights. These are the things, the boxes that I have to check. And then I just sort of like wiped my hands of religion when I no longer had to feel obligated to it. And so for me, like there wasn't that element of control with my parents there. They were strict in certain ways, but it wasn't restrictive to like my overall person. And so I was diving into this yesterday in therapy and being like, what was it then? Like, why did I feel so desperate for acceptance and belonging when I was loved at home and I felt safe at home in a lot of ways? And the reality is, is that I felt alone in a lot of ways too. I knew I was gay since I was nine, but I didn't come out until I was like 19. And that was in sort of drips and drabs because it was hard to figure out how to tell people. And this was now, oh my gosh, I did the math yesterday. I was like, it was almost 20 years ago, which is weird. Like, first of all, a little upsetting how quickly I'm aging. <laughs> and and also just because, you know, you don't think about it a lot after you do it. At least for me, it felt like, okay, I've gotten to that milestone. I don't have to keep like going through this and and sharing it in such a deliberate way. It can just be who I am now. And so kind of the combination of all of those things came together at this time when I met my ex, where it was like, I was ready to be out and I knew I wanted a relationship and I lacked a ton of self-confidence. So the, you know, I don't even want to say minimal attention, but the type of attention that I was getting and the perceived sense of acceptance was something I like latched onto with a lot of hope and ultimately like decided in my head, this is what I'm going to do. And that was what I ran with. And I really recommend to anybody before you commit to a relationship, like ask yourself why you're doing it. You know, um, we don't often think about it that way, but I, I feel like if I had kind of gut checked myself on what is it that I'm here for, it would have been probably more validated that I was there because I wanted to be in a relationship, not because this person was the right person for me to be in a relationship with. You, you are not alone in that. I I really think that so many of us don't have the capacity even to stop and ask that question to ask why Am I doing this or, and, mm-hmm. and even if that comes up, you have a quick answer. There's, there's not the ability to be introspective there because you risk losing whatever it is you're gaining from this dynamic. What you think you're gaining too, right? Yes. Because you're spot on Christina. Like I was like, this person sees me, this person wants to be with me. And 
something you and I discussed previously was this moment where it came to me where I was in feeling needed, I felt wanted. Mm-hmm. And at some point in my life, I learned that. I taught myself that I allowed that to be the way that I pursued relationships. It allowed me to justify the situations I put myself in. I was constantly pining. I was always interested in somebody who was emotionally unavailable. Like the information I wish I had when I was younger, because in retrospect, you're like, come on, it's textbook, right? Like mm-hmm. it's so much easier to to zoom out and look at it and not have grace for yourself. But one of the things that you said to me when you and I were exchanging audio messages probably like a month or so ago was you left when you could. And I will tell you that that has come up. I mentioned that in therapy. I've mentioned that to multiple people. That was one of the most important things that somebody has said to me in regard to making the decision to leave and also helping me have grace for myself on the healing journey. Because it is so easy to look back at it and be like, come on, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you go faster? Why, 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 why? And when you said you left when you could, it allowed me to really inspect like why I was there for so long and not in the same way that I had, but more in the sense of what did it feel like in that moment when I recognized that I had the freedom of choice to leave? Because when you're trapped in a toxic, particularly a psychologically abusive relationship, in my experience, it was physically abusive once at the end. It was like, I was trapped by my need to be loyal to this person. I was trapped by my expectation that this person could change when they weren't actively trying to, but they were telling me they were trying to. And so you convince yourself of a lot of things when you're in those moments that when you walk away and you can look at it with a little more objectivity, you you can give yourself that grace. So I really have a tremendous amount of gratitude to you for making that statement because it profoundly impacted me and my healing journey. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I'm so glad that it was supportive that the realization I'll call it for me around that had a very similar effect. And I think that's why I share it with people who like you, who are my friend and um, clients as well, because there, there is such a tremendous amount of shame in, in, and, and you even, you even mentioned, mentioned this, you said textbook. And I, I think like we, so many of us have grown up with this concept of like, I should know better. And, and so when something is so obvious and we don't have capacity to see it for whatever reason, we then shame ourselves because it is quote unquote so textbook or so obvious and it doesn't allow us to heal because we are looking on our past selves with shame and and this is this is an interesting concept because like i was working with an artist a couple of years ago and we were talking about like how the tendency is to be like well that was shit that i made last year and on to bigger and better things. Like the thing I'm going to make is going to be the good thing. But you can't continue to create from that 
place because then you're always knowing that you're going to fail. And, and it's the same in relationships and in life. You have to allow yourself grace in looking back so that you can move forward with less anxiety and with more grace. And I yeah. feel like the belief of like, I'm, I left when I could, I did what I can. I am literally always doing the best that I can. Yeah. I love that. It's such a good philosophy, Christina. And I appreciate that that's the place that you come from too. And that I love that conversation you were having with your friend because I, you know, as we were just kind of getting started with this conversation and talking about just podcasts, right? They're not like churning out money. Like, it's like yeah, you've got a podcast, you're making it, you know? Um, <laughs> I There are a handful of people who are in that boat, but I think that, you know, you can't do something and only see it as successful when it's profitable or only see in the case of a relationship, only see it as successful when, you know, these certain boxes are checked. And I think that's how a lot of people get stuck too, is that you can check all the fucking boxes you want that are on like the, you know, kind of textbook standard. This is what a good relationship looks like. But are you asking yourself the hard questions about, the why you're in that relationship, the what that relationship, how does that relationship make you feel? And one of the things that I say very frequently to people who are either friends or through the podcast that if you are unsure of what you want, if you've never done this exercise, I highly recommend it. Write down a list of your wants, needs, and deal breakers. It seems really straightforward, but I imagine a lot of people have never done it because most of us don't ask ourselves what we want. Most of us don't ask ourselves what we need. And we sure as hell are not going to do that when we feel like we're not getting it. It's like mm -hmm. we put a barrier up because if we do that, then we're going to have to acknowledge that we're not getting what we want and we're not getting what we need. And oh. you also, you also might recognize that if you write out that deal breaker list, that there are a lot of deal breakers in your relationship that you're willing to ignore. Because I know like sure as anything that when I wrote that list out, yeah, a ton of it, this was after I'd left my ex, a ton of it was reflective of things that I put up with and things that I shouldn't have tolerated. But I never asked myself what that looked like when I was in it. And I sure as heck didn't ask myself that before I overcommitted to it. And I think that it's so important to like give yourself that clarity. It's such a perfect exercise, like really look at yourself and your relationship through as much of an objective lens as you can. Mm, that's so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's going to be useful to so yeah, many people because like what, what you're describing, especially doing this before, um, it, there, there's a key thing that you said where once you're in it, you're not going to, you're not going to write out the things that that person doesn't have because we want, we want it to work like that's why we're there so the the only like pure time to write this out is if you have the ability to to self-observe and literally write as though you are not in a relationship or before totally. when you have when you have just literally possibility in front of you oh I love the way that you phrase that too you're so articulate with uh, these pieces of wisdom that you impart, Christina, is one of my favorite things about chatting with you, other than, you know, just your overall awesome personality. But I just feel like you have so many words of wisdom that they don't just, it's, it comes from such a place of empathy. And I feel it when you say it, you know, like, I understand the good that's coming, the intention that's coming from what you're saying. And 
when you. you think about those moments in life when we're in bad relationships, unhealthy relationships, you know it, right? Like, you know it. You know your relationship isn't healthy. Whether or not you are willing to acknowledge that is a completely different story. And I can't fault people for not acknowledging it or recognizing it. When it comes to abuse, that's a very different beast, right? It takes people on average seven times to leave a domestic abuse situation. That can be psychological or physical. Mm. That's a lot of hemming and hawing. That is a lot of knowing and not executing. And the question is why, right? Why? If we were like, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. Time number one. Nope. I came back Two, nope. And like, you keep going through this cycle and it's like, to your point, you start to shame yourself more because you're like, I tried to leave and I couldn't, I, ch- I wanted to leave. I knew better. I should have. And I didn't. And it's mm-hmm. like, we punish ourselves for knowing that we should leave and that we want to leave. And I think sometimes we, even just saying that out loud, I'm kind of shifting my thought here. So hopefully the audience can track, but it's like us trying to leave means we want to leave. Mm -hmm. It is hard for us to acknowledge that want, because like what you said earlier is we want these relationships to work, but what we fail to acknowledge and what we, we struggle to allow ourselves is to recognize that a relationship ending is not a failure. It simply means that this isn't right. And in other aspects of your life, let's let's kind of make it a little bit more superficial and have it come to the point of like a job that you're working. If you don't like what you're doing anymore and you have the means, you're most likely going to quit. And you're not necessarily going to feel that bad about it because you say to yourself, I'm not happy anymore. Why would I continue doing this? But with relationships, we are so much more forgiving for the bullshit we don't want to deal with. We're like, I'm miserable. I don't, if you don't even like the person that you're with, and I really encourage anybody listening to ask yourself this question if you're in this headspace, okay? Do you like the person that you're with? Would you be friends with them if you were not in a relationship? If the answer is no, I am virtually certain that that is not your person because you want to be able to be with somebody that provides the emotional and psychological safety that a friend provides. And then in addition to that, you have the romantic connection, you have the chemistry, but like Mm -hmm. the foundation of what you seek in the people that you are friends with is fundamentally should be fundamentally what you're looking for in a partner. And the moment for me where this like really came to the forefront was Sitting on the porch with my dad after we lost my mom, right around the time that I had met Nicole, and we were still, I think, either talking as friends or I was trying to tell my dad that we were talking, and so I was kind of like, "This is my new friend," whatever. (laughs) Um, And and I said, "Oh yeah, you know, she runs her own business." Like she, my dad said, "Does she travel?" And I said, "Yep, yeah, she actually went to see the Great Migration in Africa, and so she's well traveled. She's, you know." cultured. She's just very smart human being. And my dad goes, see, this is the caliber of person you surround yourself with. Like you did, you do that with everybody else except your ex. Mm -hmm. And it was like the moment for me, the reason that provided so much clarity was because what prompted that 
wants, needs, deal breaker list was actually looking at a list of core values that I saw online somewhere. And it was a lengthy list, probably like 50 things, which seems like a lot. But if you go through it, it's probably like what most good human beings would have as like their core set of values, loyalty, integrity, honesty, you know, things that are like, yes, I would like for myself and the people that I surround myself with to have these qualities. And the thing that so many people will say, and I'm sure you've heard this or you've possibly justified this to yourself too, right? Is like, well, you're never going to find somebody who does all of those things. And it's like, I mean, we all have flaws. We're all human, but I don't think it's like fundamentally impossible or foundationally impossible to find somebody who has the same morals and values that you have. I think that's completely within reason, but we are so willing to compromise because we are like, got to fit that square peg in this round hole. Got to do it. It's fine. They're here now. This is convenient. I want a relationship now. You will do. Here are all the things that I'm willing to compromise or sacrifice to get what I want, even though what I want isn't actually in the package that like is, is here. It's me convincing myself that this is good enough because I don't see other options. Mm, I'm going to, I'm going to pause you for a second. Go for it. Um, Cause I, I want to empathize with like the, all of this because you're right. It's the, it is um, a lot of what you're saying. And also I want to add a little bit more compassion um, because for you, because we, you asked at the beginning, um, like why why do we why do we stay and why do we not leave if we don't like someone even or if we we know we want to leave we're trying to leave that means we want to leave and we know that and then we're shaming ourselves for that the the piece that you mentioned when you talked about work was we like if we have the means and it's it's really about capacity if yeah. if we we that's why we leave when we can because the, all of those like trying to leave are the like, do I have the capacity to handle this emotional turmoil that I will experience when I leave? And then it's like, ow, 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 no, ow, 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 no. And in that process, we're building that capacity. And yeah, for so right. whatever woundings that we have from before, there, there's a really fucking valid reason for you doing exactly what you did. In fact, it's fucking brilliant. Because you got your needs met somehow in all of that until you didn't. Honestly, it was through the podcast. It was through the podcast. It was like I kept my connection with people Mm. in a way that like gave me that like connection, that community, that sense of safety that I needed Mm. and the conversations I was having with people who had left toxic relationships, who had gone through all these really horrible moments in their life, not even necessarily related to relationships, but just the resilience, the strength of spirit and character that came with this growth that they had. It was like, it was all teaching me during that process when I was effectively stuck. And so Mm -hmm. to your point, yeah, you're right. It's fascinating how much we can tap into that survival mechanism because we were very, um, innovative when it comes to navigating that. And I I really respect and appreciate you coming back to that and and bringing it to that place because you're absolutely correct. We're evolutionary. Like we, we literally like exist evolving. So it makes sense. I just, Oh my God, I just said this. (laughs) Um, 
and listened to it back on a podcast that I had recorded that's awesome. um, as a guest previously. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, that's so true. Like, yeah, I think you and I have so many similarities, I, I think, in the way that we see the world. And part of why I love talking to you so much and, and I'm so grateful for our friendship is that I know that you will expand on the things that I'm thinking as well. And so it bring it brings more to where I'm already at. And it it's so important, I think, for listeners to have people in your life that will support you and challenge you in a healthy way. Um, the the thing with toxic relationships is you're often being challenged in a very unhealthy way. And so you feel, I mean, if you've been gaslit, you know, um, it's like you feel like you're off the rails entirely. But when somebody challenges you with grace and and um compassion to say, hey, but think about it this way, you have, as you said, the the term that you use and I love is the capacity, right? Like you have the capacity to receive that. And that's actually something that you say too, when we speak, right? You're like, I receive that. And it's a great way of acknowledging that you hear and that you feel what somebody is, is presenting to you. And I, I think when we look at those situations in our lives and we see, I should have left or I tried to leave and I didn't, that when we come back around and we see that moment where we actually made the decision to your point, Christina, like I look back, I wrote constantly in like my Apple notes, things that I was feeling about what was going on in my life years before I actually left. And then I come back to it and I'm like, I knew. Like, I clearly knew what was I doing? Why didn't I go? Why didn't I go? And it's like, because every time I had one foot out the door, something crazy would happen. Like my ex would go through some either real or faux traumatic event that would then pull me back in and kind of hold me hostage in the relationship. And it's only through a lot of therapy (laughs) that like I was able to really recognize how, how handcuffed I was to that circumstance, not just because I, you know, didn't want to leave or wasn't trying to leave, but because the emotional weight was too much. Because to your point with regard to capacity, I felt the obligation to keep this person safe. It didn't matter that they didn't give a shit if I was safe. It didn't Mm. matter at all. It Mm. was like, I compromised my emotional and physical safety and mental well-being for this person while they completely disregarded mine. And it took a lot of, you know, me really allowing myself to be accountable for my own part in that too, because I knew when I was being gaslit, but it's hard to prove that you're being gaslit when somebody's gaslighting you. It's like the most annoying thing in the world. I physically (laughs) still feel it in my body because there are these moments where I'm like, oh, I just fucking hate that, you know? And it's like, But you can't, when you're in the heat of that moment, you're just trying to get through that moment. Mm -hmm. And so it's so much easier to put it together in pieces in retrospect and be like, well, all those things happened. How come I didn't just exit this sooner? And it's like, because you forget what it felt like every time you tried. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a display. It's a display of dominance over you every time. And yeah, wow. Oh, oh, that hits. Damn. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> it's, it's a, I mean, it's a system, it's oppression on this micro scale of a relationship, yeah. not micro meaning small, but micro meaning dynamic. 
you have yeah. you have one space where someone is operating out of part of a system that has worked for them and yeah. our whole entire society is built on hierarchical structures and people who have um the reflexors to protect themselves in a narcissistic way thrive in in operating that way yeah yeah you're so spot on and like i said i just i love the way you think about it but also the way that you phrase it and the way that you can equate it to the broader societal um architecture that we live within you know and you see we so we reward narcissists honestly um as a society yes and I'm waving my hands. Yes, <laughs> we do. It's, Interesting. Say more about that, Nike. <laughs> um, you know, well, when we were kind of starting this conversation, we were talking about, you know, businesses deemed successful on on what sort of merit, right? It's not, it's not often or always profit. It's based on the perception of value. <laughs> and so- if narcissists are at the top of it being like, we're valuable, look at how valuable we are. And you just have to convince the people around you that you're valuable. Like you're, you're basically handpicking the way that you get to the top and saying like, I'm manipulating the circumstances around me to get what I need. And that, as you said, at a micro level in a relationship is the way that a narcissist treats somebody that they're in a relationship with or somebody in their family or whatever. I love the way that you made the comment about it being oppressive because it is, I hadn't really thought of it in that way, but it struck me so specifically when you said it, because we, we sort of have agreed that these like massive business owners who have billions and billions of dollars can just do whatever the hell they want. No consequences. Doesn't matter. We sit here and we act like there's a real justice system. There's not. And then there's nothing punitive for them. And I'm not saying that for the sake of like, okay, there's a million threads that we could pull on there in terms of how the system's broken. But the reality is, is that at just a very basic level, we are not saying we're saying there aren't any consequences for doing things that intentionally hurt other people. And so why would it be any different at an individual level when there's less visibility to that circumstance? Even just in Washington state where it's a like a no fault 50-50 state, if you get divorced, it didn't matter that my ex was psychologically abusive how do you prove it physically abusive the proof was there but it couldn't be related to the divorce there was film or film video indicating that like she was taking my car to go get drugs i had proof that she was stealing money from me none of it mattered we do not care that people are taking advantage of each other and because there's no consequence for that it proliferates and i think it allows what what we see is that like whether it's a huge scale at a global level or a small scale on a personal level, it's like at what point are the people who are doing these things to hurt others or to take from others being held accountable? And at the end of the day, they're not. And so it requires the people who are being taken advantage of or abused to force the accountability. And in a lot of cases, that means 
you have to remove yourself from the situation. And sometimes your removal from the situation is the only way you can hold them accountable because there's nothing else that will. Mm -hmm. Right. So their goal is to keep you there. And so if you can leave now, they're at least a little accountable. I'm saying this in the sense of if the consequence is that you're gone, then now that's like holding them accountable for their behavior. They're not going to change most likely anything else in their life. They're going to continue to perpetuate these things. But like that's the, the part that you can control. Right. Your own participation is how or or exiting a situation is how you can keep somebody accountable because we say we want to leave. We tell them we're going to leave and then they pull us back in and they th- see it as you're never going to leave. How many people say that? You're never going to leave. And like you said, people who don't have the capacity financially for sure. You know, you'll never leave. How will you ever survive without me emotionally? You can't do this alone. How will you ever do this without me? And businesses operate that way too. And we live in this mm-hmm. state of fear mm-hmm. that allows us to perpetuate that cycle because it's almost like it feels like it's too big to to solve. Um, and I don't think that it is, but I think it requires a massive, massive societal shift. Yeah, I think we've all forgotten how big we are. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I always you know? say there's power in numbers. And I think there's more people that want the good things and want good for themselves and other people. But we've sort of resigned to accepting the way that it is. And I, I think that's a mistake on our part. And conversations like this need to help encourage that realization and that shift. Yeah, I was I was talking on a podcast yesterday with someone who I was telling them their Gen Alpha is the first generation to have an elementary school fifth grader um, arrange a protest against gun violence. Fifth First grade. of all, I'm... St- so sad that they have to, but also I'm Horrific. very grateful that they're, that they're, here's the thing that I will say, because you're, you're a mom, you have a young child. Like I have a niece and nephew who are three and five. So like I, I can empathize in that way. And I think about it and it terrifies the hell out of me. I don't know how my friends send their kids to school. Right. Like I don't, I, it, it must be so stressful as a parent. The thing that I have a lot of appreciation and admiration for in younger generations is they are so much more activated. You and I are roughly in the same age. We're in our thirties, right? So like Mm -hmm. growing up, I felt like the system's the system. It is what it is. Like, I'm not trying to change anything. It's an oiled machine. I don't know if it's well-oiled, but it's functioning, you know? Um, And I didn't feel the pressure to create the change. And I wish that I had, because I think if, I think Gen X and millennials were sort of, I've this might be controversial for some people. I'd be curious on your thoughts on this. I think that like my parents are boomers. Their parents are like the, you know, greatest generation, silent generation, whatever you want to call it, like the depression era. So it's like our parents were taught like, hold on to what you have. It's competitive. It's important to get what you need. And then you can like, you can help other people, but like, make sure you're good. And so operated from this place of sort of like you first and then other people, um, which I think coming from a depression era parent, that makes sense, right? You're like, if shit goes sideways, like make sure you're cool. Like I understand that from a survival perspective, but the thing that I think really hit us hard as Gen X and millennials is that there wasn't 
encouragement to be activated. It's like they had the 60s and the 70s and Vietnam and all of these other like really important moments in life where in like World War II that for their parents that like they rallied around. And being a kid in the 90s, like I know that there was global um, chaos happening, right? But it felt so far removed from our lives. And because of that, it didn't feel like I needed to be participating or actively thinking about all the time. And sometimes I feel like that may have been by design because look at who's still leading the charge in a lot of political arenas. Like that's a lot of people in their 60s, 70s, 80s when it really should be people in their like 30s, 40s, 50s. And if you look at like historically the way things have sort of trickled down and and you eventually hand it over to the next generation. And so I think, you know, we're seeing more of that now, but I think Gen Z and and Gen Alpha, like they're the ones who are like, we don't have time to waste. We have to be active now. So a Mm. fifth grader organizing a protest is devastating. And I think also really inspiring. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. And listeners, we want to hear from you what your experience was because um, Nikki, I had a very different experience in in okay. the same generation, um, only because I was raised in like extreme religion. Like we focused I was on curious the end how, times. <laughs> yeah, I was curious so, how it was how it was for you. <laughs> yeah, so like political events um, were were talked about a lot. It was like a sign of whatever, a sign of this, a sign of this. It was like basically playing out like the corruption of humanity. Like there was a lot of a lot of things that went on that had had like biblical explanations and like were talked about in youth group and like were brought into our experience as like not not the world is ending in the way that like <laughs> the earth is dying but in in the sense that like we're looking forward to this and also like it's fucking terrifying so yeah. there's like a level of trauma i think that like even though it was like oppressed in your case where it was just like, it's not that big of a deal. Like, don't worry about it. You focus on you. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, st- it's still happening. It's still reverberating underneath the surface. For me, totally. it was just like in my face and, yeah. and there, you know, so it's, I, I think it's like still affects us just in, in like, in similar, but different, similar uh, subconscious ways. And um, less similar conscious ways, if that makes sense. Well, yeah. Yeah. And I love that you pointed that because I was thinking as I was saying it, I was like, if there's a significant difference, I have to imagine a big part of that goes into the way that you were raised in religion. And one of the questions I have for you with regard to that then is, do you feel like because it was front and center in a lot of ways in those conversations that you were activated to change, like create change in that way? But was that if so, was that also really like you're activated to create change through religion? Because I know that like you had gone down the path of like the religious education and wanting to help. I think you said like recruit people to a cult um, was the phrase that you used. So like I so I feel like were you activated in that way versus maybe like the way that we're seeing people activated now. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I'm so glad you pointed that out. Um, it's, it was a extreme activation towards what I was told would fix it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. I was, I was fed the answer of like, this is what's happening and here's the answer for what to do to fix it go out and like tell people about Jesus because like 
if the world is ending from this perspective and all these people are going to hell, like the activism is then saving people from hell, right? Um, so activating, yes, nervous system overwhelm and also recruiting people into a cult. Like it's all just like a part of one giant conglomerate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting too, because like I think about that and it just blows my mind because I not having the attachment to religion and speaking to a lot of people who have come out of very religious upbringings or circumstances, it's like I I struggle to wrap my head around it. I was recording with my friend Alex and he came out of an evangelical upbringing. He's now um, like a, um, oh gosh, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't, my brain is not, it's like essentially a universal reverend. I can't come up with the multi- Universalist? Multi-faith. No, no, it's not specifically the type of religion um, or following, but it's like, I'm trying to think. So it's sort of like multi-religion. Um, yeah, my brain is, I'm sorry, Alex, I'm trying. Um, <laughs> but yes, um, oh, um, interfaith, interfaith minister. Um, <laughs> I've heard of it. I got there. Thanks. <laughs> um, where it's like, you sort of take things from a variety of religions and and kind of find your the what feels right to you there, right? And be able to take the good things from these concepts. And what I think is really interesting is that I was trying to have this dialogue with him on his show. And I said, well, if you take religion out of it, and as the words were coming out of my mouth, if you take the Bible out of it, right? It's like, I knew that the response was going to be, that's easier for certain people to say than it is for others, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, because to me, it's like, I grew up learning about religion, but it was so insignificant in the way that it impacted my life that I can be like, well, just like forget that for a second and think about this. And you're like, no, you have to think about the people who have had this like ingrained in them from the get go. And to your point are being told, this is how you save people. This is how you create the change that you desire, that we need to keep you safe. And so it's like, that manipulation is so powerful. And I think to tie it back to that concept of a relationship where you are essentially shackled, it's like you are in, while you're there, you're being convinced that what you're doing is like the thing that you should be doing. Where you are is where you should be. The people that you're interacting with are the people that you should continue interacting with. Like it doesn't matter the scale. At the end of the day, it's about control and maintaining control. And so it also requires the um, the type of conversations that people are having with you or interactions to make you question any doubt that you have. And I think that that is one of the parts where like on a personal and religious level, it's very relatable. It's like you are hearing things that you're like, mm, I don't really know about that. I I feel like maybe we should we should question that or we should talk about it. And it's like, it just gets shut down really fast, right? Like you can't, if you go too far, like you will not proceed. Like they're they're gonna put a hard block on it. You're not going to finish that conversation. And I feel like it's a series of sort of detours trying to make sure that you don't ever get to the finish line. Mm, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I feel like um, from from what I understand of cults and it applies to toxic relationships or abusive relationships is as a friend of someone, if you're a friend of someone in that environment or situation, stay close to them. Um, don't try to pull them out of it. 
because your goal is to be in it for the long haul. You want to be there when they do want to talk to someone. You need to be someone that they can talk to. And if they know you're vehemently against them, they probably won't be sharing with you. Yeah. Um, so staying close is a critical part. I love that. Yeah, I love that you said that too, Christina, because one of the things that came up when I had left was a bunch of my friends saying, I feel like I should have said more or done more. And like, there was nothing you could have said or done. There was nothing you could have said or done. In fact, you tried. Like, And I think so many people feared losing the relationship entirely if they pushed too hard. And so they understood, I think, fundamentally what you're saying, which is yeah. I'd rather make sure that like we don't lose this relationship entirely. And at the end of um, like when I lost my mom and I had had my ex come out for her services, really regret that in retrospect because we were already like on the outs, but I felt like I needed the support. She tried really hard to drive a wedge between myself and my best friend and myself and my family. And it was like the most I'd ever witnessed sort of that um, intent to isolate mm -hmm. and to push me away from people because it was like, it was so much more desperate. Yeah. It was like when people feel that the end is coming, they will drive harder and faster to bring you down yeah. or to hold you in place to keep you captive. And so I think part of it, too, is if you're someone who's leaving or a friend or family of somebody who's trying to leave, it's like being very cognizant that right near the end is when it's probably going to be the hardest, at least in my experience, leaving the relationship, because to bring it back to what you'd said before about like when you try to leave and you're like ow 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 no and then it's like ow 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 oh no and then it's like so that last one it's like you are running through fire to get the hell out of dodge and so there can't be any looking back you just have to be like this is the decision i've made and we're running no matter what i don't care and so having people who are close to you and who are there to receive you at the end of it is just super important and really empowering as I was very, very lucky that I have a core group of people in my life, family and friends that received, you know, me getting out of that with open arms and gave the love, attention and um, affection that I needed because it's not easy to get out. And when you're out, even if you know it's the right thing you're now battling everything that we've just talked about in this episode mm -hmm. to kind of negotiate with yourself about like releasing that guilt, releasing that shame. Thank you so much for sharing that, Nikki. I really appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing your experiences with such honesty. It to me, to me feels like you share without affectation, meaning you don't need to embellish and you don't need to downplay you just say things as they are and it's really beautiful to witness your experience from your from your perspective and also to see the things that you've gained as far as wisdom that you can pass on to everyone you speak to so thank you so much for being here I know we're gonna have many more conversations yes, this is yes, not yes. the end listeners Nikki and I will be <laughs> chatting much more thank you for joining us Absolutely. today thanks so much Christina I had a blast Thank you for joining me today. If you are looking for support in your own life, please visit christinamcarlson.com to learn about my one-on-one -on -one coaching. Stay curious and remember, your magic and art are found in your messy humanity.